welcome to the Everyday Neuro podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Janine Cooper, and I'm aiming to provide you with knowledge and inspiration into understanding the fascinating world of the human brain. In today's podcast, I'll be discussing the topic of expertise and introducing you to some of the cognitive domains that contribute to it, namely working memory, attention and executive functioning. I'll talk with Joel Galter, who has completed a study looking at the expertise of air traffic controllers to discover the complex abilities that are required to do this highly skilled task that maintains our safety in the air. And I'll conclude the podcast by hopefully giving you some top tips on how you can enhance your performance and expertise in an area of your choice. So let's start by defining the term expertise. Well, it's actually not as easy as you might imagine. Some believe, such as Malcolm Gladwell, that it's all to do with time, whereby the more time you spend practicing your task, the greater your level of skill and expertise. Gladwell claims that 10,000 hours of what he calls deliberate practice are needed to become world-class in any field. However, I'm sure you can imagine a scenario where that's not the case. For me, I could practice the piano for thousands of hours, but it certainly won't make me Lang Lang or Chopin. And I'm sure my partner and neighbours will testify to that one. Rather, it seems that practice is important, but not the sole contributor to expertise. Brooke McNamara and colleagues in 2014 reviewed multiple studies and they found that deliberate practice explained 26% of the variance in games. For music, it was 21% and for sports, it was 18%. But when they looked at education, the amount dropped considerably to a very low 4% and for professions, it was almost negligible at just 1%. So other than deliberate practice, what else contributes to expertise and will help us to find an accurate definition? Well, our ability to learn facts and store them in memory for future use and discussion, which is also known as declarative knowledge, is also very important, especially in domains of education and professional practice, such as history, philosophy, or for me, psychology. However, equally as important is procedural knowledge or our ability to know how to do something. And this is clearly observed in music, games and sports. However, these do not act independently, and so we must consider all of these things that we've talked about so far contributing to expertise. For example, if you have recently watched the Winter Olympics, then the ability to snowboard or ice dance requires a huge amount of physical practice and procedural knowledge to be able to physically perform at that expert level. However, Declarative knowledge is also required because the athletes need to be able to know the best route or strategy to complete the course or to get the most amount of points. Also, we cannot forget natural ability, and this relies on physical and cognitive resources that the individual brings to the task even before any training or learning has taken place. So from here on in the podcast, I'm going to refer to expertise using the definition provided by a Swiss psychologist, Fernand Gobe, in his 2015 book, Understanding Expertise, a Multidisciplinary Approach. And he says an expert in a given domain is somebody who obtains results that are vastly superior to those obtained by the majority of the population. So now that we've discussed the definition of expertise, 
let's talk about what it involves. Well, it certainly requires us to be able to focus and attend to the most important aspects of the task. It also requires that we hold in mind important task-relevant information that we've acquired or, as we call it, encoded from our environment. We may also have to rely on our long-term memory to help us pull into conscious thought previous strategies or memories that help us with the task and also to manipulate any relevant information to perform the task in the best possible way. Also, another very important ability is to inhibit or discard thoughts and emotions that may hinder this performance and stop us from planning relevant strategies. So this big description I've just referred to involves three key cognitive domains, attention, working memory and executive function. And I'd now like to explore each of these with you in more detail. Let's start with attention. This is the way by which we actively process a limited amount of information from the enormous amount of information that is available to us through our senses, our stored memories and our other cognitive processes. Attention is a component of information processing and there are several types of attention which we use in different scenarios. Two of the ones I'm going to talk about today are focused attention which is useful when we have to concentrate on the task relevant stimuli and also selective attention, which allows us to focus on a task at hand and ignore task irrelevant stimuli. So an example of this is when you're trying to read a book on a busy train or a bus and you have to attend to the relevant information. In this case, it's the words on the page and also to focus on the story while you're also ignoring things around you in the environment, such as people talking, noise from traffic or information about stops that are not relevant to you. However, we don't necessarily block out all the information as this would mean that we could actually miss our preferred stop because we have become engrossed in the book. So how does it work? Well, Anne Treisman developed the attenuation theory of attention that proposes that our attentional system uses something called an attenuator. And this is a bit like a mechanism whereby the strength of a signal can be modified and in this case reduced. And this model analyzes incoming messages in terms of physical characteristics, language and meaning. And Treisman's theory suggests that as well as the task relevant information being attended to, so too is the less relevant information. But thanks to the attenuator, it just has a differing strength of importance to us. So in other words, it's reduced in its strength. So that's why common and important words such as your own name or the distress call help, although potentially irrelevant to the task you're doing, for example, reading the book, these words are still easily noticed because they have meaning to you. A real life example of this is the cocktail party effect, whereby you can be at a busy party or social event and you're listening intently to a friend's story, but then suddenly your attention is drawn to the back of the room because you've heard your name being mentioned. The mention of your name is not relevant to the friend's news story, but due to the attenuator, it has been detected as it's considered as important to you. Attention is limited as we only have a finite capacity of storage. Let's imagine you are cooking a meal and that you have a basket to load everything into to complete this task. 
You will only have a limited amount of space in this basket and so only the most important things are put in there so that the task can be performed at its best. Well, your attention is like this basket and sometimes the load on your attentional system is maxed out by things that may be irrelevant to the task at hand. So in cognition, this can be any information from the environment that is not useful, such as noise or visual distraction. It could be thoughts, it could be memories or even emotions such as anxiety or self-doubt. The result of loading your basket or loading your attention with irrelevant information means that it's unlikely that the task will be performed at its best. Each person's basket or attentional load differs depending on things such as mood or fatigue as well as how skilled you are at something. What is important to know is that often experts maximize their attentional load by the use of strategies that allow for more information to be held in active thought, otherwise known as working memory, which enhances their overall performance at a task compared to non-experts. And I'll share some of these strategies with you in the final part of this episode. So I've just mentioned the term working memory. What exactly is that? Well, it's the ability to hold in mind and manipulate information from your current environment as well as from long-term memory for a short amount of time. However, unlike short-term memory, which stores information as it's been encoded, such as a phone number, working memory requires that you manipulate or work with that information in some way. So for example, if you listen to a string of numbers or digits and repeat them, then this is an example of short-term memory. So hearing the digits, 2915 and then correctly repeating them in the same order that you heard them in a task called digit span forward should be a relatively easy task for most people. In this example the string was four digits long and as the length gets longer then usually the task gets harder to do. However let's now try a working memory task. Once again, you will hear the digit string, but this time you have to recall them in the reverse order from what you have heard. And so you are actively manipulating or working the information into a different form. Okay, let's have a go. I will say the numbers and then there will be a gap where you provide them, but in the reverse order. You can write your answer down or say it aloud or in your head. I will then give you the correct answer, but only listen to the numbers once. Otherwise, it's cheating and the test is invalid. So let's see how you do. Here we go. Three, seven, one, five. The correct answer is five, one, seven, three. Here's another. Two, one, six, nine, four. The correct answer is four, nine, six, one, two. Try another one. Seven, three, one, eight, three, two. The correct answer is two, three, eight, one, three, seven. And finally, Five one nine three eight six two. The correct answer is two six eight three nine one five. So how did you do? I'm sure you will agree that this task, also known as digit span backwards, is harder to do than if you recall the numbers in exactly the same order as you heard them. If you got all of them correct, then you have a digit span backwards of seven. For most people, their digit span backwards is less than the digit span forwards score. And getting seven in a row isn't easy, so well done if you did. 
One of the most famous models of working memory has been developed by Alan Badley and Graham Hitch. Their working memory model proposes that we have two subordinate systems, the visuospatial sketchpad that encodes and temporarily stores visual information and the phonological loop that temporarily stores acoustic information. Both have a very limited capacity and research has suggested that it's around about two seconds. Overseeing these two temporary stores is the central executive, which acts as an office manager, providing guidance and control over the way in which the information is managed. Strategies such as rehearsing and placing meaning on this information will reduce decay and the likelihood that it will be forgotten, and hopefully it will be then passed into long-term memory. Badley and Hitch added the episodic buffer to the model in 2000, which allows a brief scene to be created by combining the information from the phonological loop with that from the visuospatial sketchpad. If you've used the app Snapchat, then it's a little bit like that. However, it too has limited storage capacity. Attention and working memory are often considered part of our executive functions. Others include inhibition, so the ability to stop yourself doing an action or response. Also, emotional control, which allows us the ability to modulate emotional responses that are appropriate to the task at hand. Also, we need to be able to initiate, so the ability to be able to begin a task or activity at the correct time, and also be able to plan and organize, which allows us to do the current task to the best of our ability. And also self-monitoring, when we're able to look at our own performance and measure it against some standard of what is needed or expected. These executive functions, along with working memory and attention, are important to expertise and are associated with the frontal lobes of the human brain. I'm now going to talk with Joel Golter, who has investigated some of these executive functions, namely working memory and inhibition, in a group of experts of the aviation world, air traffic controllers. Hi, Joel. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Everyday Neuro podcast series. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Janine. It's great that you can join us, Joel. So can you tell us why you chose to look at expertise in air traffic controllers? I chose air traffic controllers because they have needed to become experts in controlling their cognitive abilities, such as their working memory, their inhibition, and their planning ability. And what I wanted to look at was what happens when you have that sort of excessive processing capacity. And so I thought I would compare the air traffic control experts to non-experts in terms of their ability to perform these tasks while being distracted. Oh, interesting. So how did you go about distracting them? What were your methods? Okay, um, so for the distraction task, what we had people do is while they were performing the other tasks I was using to measure these cognitive abilities, I also had them try to watch a timer and press the lap button at every minute that the timer went past. I also included a sort of clutter of distracting um, items all over the desk, which made it difficult to focus in on what they were doing. And half of the um, control and air traffic control participants would do this, whereas the other half I would leave undistracted. So you're presuming that the air traffic controllers, due to the nature of their work, would be potentially better at blocking out these distractions? 
That's correct. Due to their training and having to control this high amount of information processing that's coming into their head, I had predicted that they would be more proficient at it and that this would leave more resources over to dealing with these extra problems. Is that what you found, Joel? We found that the air traffic controllers were better at tasks which required them to inhibit and control their behavior and not just sort of give in to that immediate response. So the distraction didn't really seem to affect our air traffic controllers, but it really affected our control participants' ability to inhibit and control their responses. Your results suggest that the air traffic controllers are experts at blocking out this distraction. How do you think they go about doing that? Well, it seems that having more resources allowed the air traffic controllers to have better control over their responses, even while distracted. So this meant they had more concentration left over to sort of block out those distractions and refocus their attention, whereas the control participants didn't have that luxury and were sort of easily distracted during tasks where they had to try and control their behaviours. So how would someone not trained as an air traffic controller, such as me, imagine this applying to our everyday lives? Could you give us an example, please? I'm sure. Well, if you think of perhaps when you're driving and you are distracted, you might find that you'll fail to perhaps stop yourself or to inhibit yourself from accelerating or braking at inappropriate times. Perhaps you're waiting at a traffic light and you're distracted and then you go to accelerate prematurely. And so you fail to inhibit your behaviors due to distraction. Were there any unexpected results perhaps due to the testing environment? Um, So the other side of it was that we found that distraction actually caused an expert's working memory to become less efficient than control participants, which was a bit confusing because if they have more capacity and this helps them in their inhibitory control abilities, why would their working memory abilities suffer from um, having all that distraction? So you only found this in the air traffic controllers, not the controls. Could you give us an example of why someone like me, a non-expert, may not have this distraction affecting my working memory? Yes, certainly. Um, Maybe if you think of when you're focusing so hard on a task that's difficult for you, say you're making a complex recipe, you're driving in peak traffic, there's no more room in your attention to be able to perhaps notice passengers talking to you or things going on in other parts of the scene. Your attention is already filled to the brim, so those distractions cannot get in because you do not have the space to notice them. You're focusing so hard. So perhaps this result could reflect that the air traffic controllers have become distracted in your testing environment because their working memory capacity has evolved to deal with the much more demanding environment of the aviation control tower. Yes, exactly. Well, as a frightened flyer, I know that I'm now feeling really confident that we're in very safe hands of highly skilled air traffic controllers. Yes, I've got to say, um, from studying with these people and seeing the amazing things they can do, I have to say I've got a lot of confidence in um, our air travel as well. Thanks so much for joining us, Joel. Such a pleasure to have you share your work with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Janine. So I'll finish the podcast by giving you a few top tips to help enhance your learning and hopefully your performance. And maybe you can become more of an expert in whatever area you choose. One way to do this is to use cues. This is when you link your learnt information to a key item. So it could be a word or an image. This builds a strong familiar link between 
for example, the word and a piece of information. And the good news is that it takes up only a small amount of your working memory and therefore it reduces the overall demand on your working memory system and this allows you to use that for other things such as planning and organization. It also makes you much faster at doing something and it conserves your cognitive resources as well as your perceptual skills so you can be more alert and ready for anything in your environment. It also reduces anxiety as you will feel a sense of familiarity. If you feel you have anxiety, especially when you're performing presentations or doing a task in front of others or taking a test or an exam, then using cues can really help along with additional practice. As well as cues, you can use guided discovery. So in other words, it raises the question of how something that you've done impacts on your overall decision. And this will help you internalize the information and make you more aware of your actions and their outcomes. It's used successfully in education, sport, aviation, and as we spoke with Joel, air traffic control. Also, if you're studying or have exams, then don't cram for four or five hours. Try and take a break for about 10 minutes every hour, as this allows your hippocampus, which is crucial for learning and memory, to be restored, and overall will give you much more beneficial effects. So thank you so much for joining me today. Please take really good care of that wonderful brain of yours. And I hope you can join me again for another episode of the Everyday Neuro Podcast Series. Take care.